Welcome to the show, folks. When last we met in our last session, we got to experience one of the worst cases of demonic possession recorded in the scriptures. This was a pretty serious case. This kid was mauled, had scars appear on him. He was thrown in fire, sometimes thrown in water. He would foam at the mouth, grind his teeth, scream spontaneously out of nowhere. Very serious case. So serious, in fact, that when the dad brought the boy to Jesus' disciples to be healed, they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. So when Jesus came down from the mountain, the dad went around them and went straight to Jesus and begged him to do it. And Jesus said, oh, you unbelieving generation, bring the boy here. And Jesus dealt with it. But then later the disciples asked him, Lord, why couldn't we do it? Because the disciples had been casting out demons. So what was different about this case? Well, Jesus told them, it says, because your lack of faith. For truly I tell you, he said, if you had just the faith of a mustard seed, you could command this mountain, move from here to there, and it would be done for you. However, even the kind of faith that a faith of mustard seed has, it does not go out except by a consistent, richly focused prayer life. The exact phrase that Jesus used was prayer and fasting. And that's when we got into all kinds of various mountains that all of us have to face, which, by the way, folks, I am smoke-free. That's the biggest mountain that's ever been, well, second biggest mountain that's ever been removed in my life. But that's where we left off last time, folks. Now, what happens next is reported in Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 to 23, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 and 32, and Luke chapter 9, verses 43 to 45. Matthew and Mark report that they were passing along here and there through Galilee, while Mark points out that Jesus didn't want anybody to know about it because he was privately engaged in teaching his disciples, or attempting to anyway. Luke reports that he told them, listen carefully to these words. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed and delivered into human hands. This is the third time Jesus has directly spoken of his upcoming death. Obviously, he can tell that his disciples don't get it. Matthew and Mark report further that he told them just in case they didn't understand. He said the Son of Man is going to be killed. And when he has been killed, after three days, he will rise from death. But they did not comprehend what he was saying. And they were afraid to ask him what this statement meant, and they were deeply grieved and distressed. Now, following that, reported by Matthew, chapter 17, verse 24, says, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the temple tax came up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Folks, the temple tax wasn't a Roman tax, but a local Jewish tax that was levied for the upkeep of the Jerusalem temple. In the original Greek, it calls it the two drachma tax. In their currency, it was a half shekel. The practice was started in Exodus chapter 30, verse 13, and Exodus 38, verse 26, in which everybody over 20 years of age was to contribute a half shekel for the upkeep of the sanctuary, the inner room of the temple. And since it was for the inner room, Exodus went all the way with it and called it a half shekel to the Lord. So in this scenario, those in charge of collecting the temple tax apparently didn't have any record of Jesus giving his half shekel. So they asked Peter, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take a toll or a tax? From their sons or from others? Now, Peter had not too long ago openly declared Jesus to be the prophesied Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, God's the king of everything. He's God. So if Peter believes Jesus to be that king's son, then why did Peter respond with a yes when the temple tax collectors asked him if Jesus had paid his share? 
Now, we don't know if it's because Peter actually thought Jesus had paid it or if Peter was just trying to say what he felt he had to say to get out from under the tax collectors, but whatever the reason, the answer he gave shows a conflict in his testimony, and it must have weighed heavy on Peter's mind because Jesus wasted no time in addressing the issue as soon as Peter got home. And I love this. Hey, Peter, from whom do kings of the earth take a toll or a tax? From their sons or from others? That question almost answers itself, doesn't it? If kings of the earth don't take a toll or a tax from their sons, then what of the king of the universe and his son? Peter said to him, from others. Then Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. So Jesus hasn't been paying the temple tax on purpose because he's the son of the God whom that temple is built for. The very idea of Jesus paying that tax is just absurd, folks. It'd be like contributing to a birthday present, and it's your birthday. But isn't it interesting, folks, that the ultimate tax, the ultimate tax that is owed to God, the ultimate debt of our sins, that's also a tax in which the Son of God is exempt. Not only has Jesus never committed a sin to raise a debt in the first place, all of the sin debt that is owed is owed by us, to Jesus' Father. Jesus, being the Son, is exempt from paying that. However, watch what happens here next. Jesus says to Peter, However, so that we don't offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you will find in it a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. It looks as though Jesus is laying down the pattern for what's going to take place in a much bigger way later on, because here's a debt that is owed by man to Jesus his Father, the God of the universe. Jesus, being the Father's Son, is exempt from paying that debt. However, he's voluntarily choosing himself to pay that debt to his Father on Peter's behalf. See, Peter hadn't paid his simple tax either. But unlike Jesus, he doesn't have an exemption. But Jesus supplied the payment on Peter's behalf and showed Peter how to get it. So by doing what Jesus said, Peter's debt was paid. But something else that's pretty interesting, and that's what Jesus specifically said about the tax collectors themselves. He basically said, let's go ahead and pay it anyway so that we don't offend them. Now, Jesus hasn't worried about offending the religious leaders before. So why now with this scenario? The difference isn't made clear, but from Jesus' attitude, I think it's safe to assume that it must have had something to do with the hearts of the people who came up collecting the temple tax who approached Peter. Some have made conjectures that these collectors were trying to trap Jesus, but I don't think that's what was going on. If that were the case here, I believe Jesus would have responded differently because he didn't stop his disciples from picking grain on the Sabbath day to keep from offending those who got offended in that scenario. He didn't command his disciples to ceremonially wash their hands up to their elbows before they eat to keep from offending those who got offended about that scenario. Instead, he accused those who got offended of being wicked and blind guides, of committing the unforgivable sin and blaspheming the Holy Spirit, of being corrupt and evil, and teaching the commandments of men as though they were commandments of God. But that's not what happens here. And I believe the reason for that can be found in Romans chapter 14, where Paul says something about being careful to not harshly judge our spiritual brothers and sisters whose faith is weak because of what they don't know. In other words, they're not evil, they just don't get it yet. Until they get it, be careful not to throw a stumbling block into their path. Paul said, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, 
and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So even though Jesus wasn't obligated to pay the temple tax, his attitude towards the collectors was an interesting one. He's thinking, you know what? Their master is my father. They're taking up the temple tax on behalf of my father. That's a good thing. And it's before my father that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld for the Lord. I myself am able to make them stand. So by Jesus voluntarily coming up with the tax payment, not only does he fulfill Peter's obligation to the Father, he helps the tax collectors fulfill their obligation to the Father. Now, the method Jesus chose to obtain the shekel is an interesting one that's caused a lot of people to scratch their heads throughout the years asking how and why. They offer several theories ranging from extremely mystic to oversimplified. First, let's examine the why. Since Jesus was showing Peter that he would personally pay man's debt to the Father, it's quite possible that this method was meant to be symbolic since water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And fish are usually a symbol of men being saved by their baptism in the Holy Spirit. Remember earlier Jesus told Peter, says, Come with me, I'll make you fishers of men. I think that's interesting. Don't know if that's altogether true, but I find that interesting. Another theory, since Peter's answer to the temple tax collectors kind of showed evidence of weakened faith, Jesus thought he needed to be reminded of his own personal confession. The first time Peter's faith was greatly increased was when Jesus told Peter to lay down his nets to pick up a haul after they had already done so all night long with no success. But after Peter obeyed Jesus, in spite of his experience, their nets were filled with so much fish that they almost sank the boat. And that incident fully convinced Peter right then and there that Jesus was deity. So this incident that's recorded here may have just been a little reminder for Peter. Both theories are plausible. Really don't know which one is true. They might both be true. That covers the why. Now let's examine the how. Not that we need to examine the how, because like my friend Crystal said, if you believe Genesis 1-1, then this shouldn't be a problem. But apparently, for whatever reason, it is a big cause for debate. One theory suggests that the fish in the Sea of Galilee were in the habit of picking up shining objects off the sea floor and getting them lodged in their gullets. And it turns out that that's even true today. You can go over there and it's still going on. And from that, it's likely that Jesus, knowing all, simply knew of a fish that had just picked up a shekel and told Peter where to find it to pay off the tax collectors. All Jesus had to do was to tell that particular fish to get into position to be picked up by Peter when he got there. And there's nothing extraordinary about that. Jesus had done that before with thousands of fish. Now, the theory of the more liberal commentators will suggest that Jesus was merely being poetic and meant for Peter to just go fishing and then sell the first fish that he caught for a shekel. Now, Peter could have done that, and Jesus could have told him to do that, but that's not what the text says. While Jesus did speak in parables at times, he was not that cryptic. So anyway, now folks, at this point in the narrative, we have a report concerning a dispute that took place among the disciples that turned into a very heated debate. And if the purpose of this debate were to be recorded for future posterity, it would be a debate that if I had taken part in, I would personally be very embarrassed about because what we find out is that they were debating over which of them might be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Luke, who wasn't there, merely an investigative reporter, simply states in his chapter 9, verse 26, that an argument arose among the disciples as to which of them might be the greatest. Mark reports in his chapter 9, verse 33, that when they came to Capernaum and when they were inside the house, probably Peter's house, 
Jesus asked them, what were you disputing among yourselves on the way? And where it says Jesus asked them, the Greek word used for asked is a form of word which suggests that Jesus had to ask them repeatedly. Because following in verse 34, it reports that they all kept silent. For on the way they had disputed who among them might be the greatest. In other words, they were slow to answer because who wants to admit that? And I always love it when we find Jesus asking a question as though he doesn't already know. Matthew's report says nothing about the debate or Jesus' question, but simply reports in chapter 18, verse 1, that the disciples came to Jesus asking, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But in Matthew's report, the Greek word used for asking is a form of the word which suggests that the asking of the question broke a long period of awkward silence. Isn't the Greek language awesome? So after Jesus asked, What were you disputing on the way? There was a period of awkward silence before one of them finally broke it, and said, Lord, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, don't forget what the Bible means when it uses the title kingdom of heaven. It's not talking about heaven itself, but the prophesied kingdom from heaven, in which Jesus himself was prophesied to be the king. So they weren't disputing over who would be the king. They already knew that Jesus was their king. He was prophesied to sit on David's throne, but that hadn't happened yet. So the disciples were planning ahead and theorizing, which of us will be Jesus' number one in that kingdom, you know? There's 12 of us. Who's going to be ranked where? No one knows what could have started such a debate, but one possible theory was that it was started after Jesus specifically chose only three of his disciples to accompany him privately to the mount where they witnessed the transfiguration. Another possible theory suggests that the seeds to this discussion may have been spawned when they came back by what Jesus told them according to Matthew's account concerning the faith of a mustard seed moving mountains. So from that, it's possible that they started thinking of examples of good faith, and then that went from there to comparing each other's level of faith, and it escalated from there. And I can only imagine how parts of that went down. Well, which of us did Jesus pick out first? He picked me first. He could have gone anywhere, but he came here first. Well, that's got nothing to do with it. The leaders of a kingdom are ranked by power. Jesus is the Son of God, the most powerful of us all. He's the king, so the rest of us will be ranked by power. Did you see all the people who got healed when I was healing people? Did you see all the demon-possessed get healed at my command? Well, that's not your power. That's God's power as a result of your faith. Jesus said the faith of a mustard seed could cast out demons and move mountains, and even then only by prayer and fasting. Well, nobody prays more than me. And I had faith in him before anybody else did. I took him at his word, while the rest of you still needed to see miracles. Some of you still don't believe. I know who's sitting on the fence and who isn't. You hadn't fooled me, and if you hadn't fooled me, you surely hadn't fooled Jesus. And then I can just hear Peter interrupting, saying, Well, if faith is the fuel of miraculous power, then look no further than right here. Oh, really? Why is that? Well, come on. Who walked on the water to get to Jesus while everybody else was screaming? Yeah, and who sank and cried for help? That's what I remember. I seem to recall Jesus saying, Why did you doubt me, O you of little faith? Tower of faith you are. Fine, go ahead and make jokes. I actually got out of the boat. I don't remember anybody else getting out of the boat. You were all too busy screaming like little girls because you thought Jesus was a ghost. Now, that's how I remember it. I knew it was Jesus all along. As a matter of fact, I knew he was coming when you were all worried about the storm. I knew he was coming, and when he came, I knew it was him, and then the rest of you said he was a ghost. No, you didn't know it was him. Yeah, I did too know you because you said, if it's you, let me come out. So I can imagine how that argument went down. This is really amazing and hilarious the more you think about it, though, folks. (laughs) Think about all the heated debates that Christians and Bible scholars have gotten into for the past 2,000 years, the kind of arguments they get into today. Eternal security, predestination versus free will, the gifts of the Spirit, the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, the rapture, the book of Revelation. 
What do you suppose the apostles debated in Jesus' day? Well, Mark and Luke report that they debated over which of them would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, folks, we can read these verses from a 21st century perspective and shake our heads, but don't forget that Jesus knew these 12 guys and everything about them before he came. He knew all about their failings, their imperfections, their lack of faith, their selfishness, and he even knew about this ridiculous, petty little debate. He knew it would take place. He knew it was going to happen from outside time before he came. But with his infinite wisdom, he still chose to pick out these particular 12 apostles. Now, isn't that encouraging to you and me with all of our own immaturities and arrogance and stupidity and selfishness? God from outside time still thought we were worth loving, saving, and building into something that glorifies him. If he can glorify himself with these 12 guys who were debating over which of them would be the greatest, then he can certainly glorify himself with any of us. And folks, that in and of itself is a miracle which proves to the world where and who that power comes from, which is the whole point. So they were debating over which of them might be the greatest. Then later Jesus asked them, what were you guys debating about on the way over here? Well, they were embarrassed, slow to answer, before one of them finally just broke the silence and asked flat out, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he sat down, according to Mark 9.35, and he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. What a concept. It's a concept that's so foreign to our way of thinking that Jesus will have to continually elaborate on it, not just in teaching, but by example, all the way up to the cross. The lower you are here in this world, which is Satan's kingdom, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the lower you are here in this world, the higher you'll be in God's kingdom. And it's no wonder that the kingdom of heaven's king will be Jesus, since no one lowered himself more than he did. Before he became human, he was timeless and physically hyperdimensional, but he entered our time domain through natural childbirth. He was the God of all creation, who said, Let there be light in Genesis 1 verse 3, and he had been sinned against repeatedly since the Garden of Eden. And yet he was born not in a palace cradle, but a barnyard feeding trough, and his first act as king was to undergo a baptism of repentance of sins, so he could be numbered as one of us. He continued that example all the way to the cross when he was again numbered as one of us between two criminals. And then he served the entire human race of all history from Adam to the very last living soul in linear time when he took upon himself their sin debt and paid it off with his own blood. When he came, he should have been first of all and served by all, but instead he came to be last of all and servant of all. So that's what he's getting into here. He set the example. You want to be counted first in my kingdom? Then you'll count yourself last here in this one. Those who will be granted the most rewards will be those who in this world sought no honor for themselves, but were constantly laying themselves out there for the blessing of others. Every single time you're a blessing to somebody else, you're earning rewards and positions of greatness in God's kingdom. That's the way it works. The less you care about yourself and your greatness here, then the greater you really are. Now, this concept is a difficult one to learn and put into practice without getting into some serious hang-ups along the way, so Jesus decided to take this opportunity to give his disciples a short lecture, which is recorded in its entirety by Matthew chapter 18, Mark chapter 9, verse 36 to 50, and Luke chapter 9, verse 47 to 50. Jesus began with a visual aid and called a little child to come near. The little child came over without any hesitation, which says a lot about Jesus' nature. 
Even though he embodied the presence of a perfect, righteous God, he didn't exude a towering, fearful presence of judgment or the usual impairments that come with the so-called generation gap. Kids loved him. Kids loved being around him. So Jesus, in the middle of his disciples, decides to call a little child over and set him by his side and took him in his arms and then made three distinctive bullet points about our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Now, for various reasons, Mark and Luke only recorded the third point that Jesus made, but Matthew gave us all three. With Jesus sitting there with the kid next to him, he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Then whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Three how-to points. One, how to enter the kingdom. Two, how to be great in the kingdom. And three, how to receive the king's favor. How to enter the kingdom is a no-brainer for those who've been paying attention since John chapter 3. Being converted and becoming as little children is another way of saying being born again. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless a man is born again, he cannot ever see the kingdom. And then to really drive the point home, he said, unless a man is born of water and the spirit, born first naturally and then reborn spiritually, he can't enter the kingdom. And just like our physical birth, when we're reborn spiritually, we are not born as mature adults. We're born into a new spiritual family as God's children. Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So spiritual rebirth is point number one. Point number two, he says, then whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The measure of greatness in that coming kingdom, folks, depends on our humility right here and now. Most people don't think about this second point because we've all been taught that everybody in heaven will be equal. Now, that's partially true because in comparison to Jesus Christ, none of us deserve to even be in his kingdom, much less considered as great. None of us have any reason to boast about being there. Because Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 tells us, For by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So in the sense of how we got there, none of us have any reason to boast. We're all equals because we all got there because of what Jesus did. But on the other hand, Jesus is that kingdom's king, and he has been personally making several points since his Sermon on the Mount about our capacity to earn rewards in that coming kingdom. And we start earning those rewards now. We know from Revelation and several other passages of Scripture that some of those rewards will be crowns, which signify positions of authority ruling with Christ in that kingdom. Now, folks, that's absurd. The idea is so absurd that it's prophesied that when we're all there, we will all lay our crowns down. I mean, can you imagine being in the presence of Jesus the King, looking at the holes in his hands, knowing that our being there is because of what he did, and then him handing out crowns to rule with him? I mean, that's absurd. And that's why everybody lays their crown down before the glassy sea, because everybody's going to have pretty much the same attitude. You've got to be kidding me. You're going to give me the position to rule this with you? But anyway, that's a rabbit trail. don't want to get into all that. The point is, we will be ruling with Christ in that kingdom. Those are positions of authority, and they're positions that we earn. It's not freely given to us. And how are they earned? Well, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount gave us several ways, and the consistent theme is humility. Remember what Jesus said? When you pray, don't do it to be seen or heard by men, but do it privately so only God sees it. When you give to those in need, don't announce it publicly to be seen by men, but do it privately so only God sees it. So with that in view here, 
What does it mean specifically to humble yourself like this little child? Are you ready for this, folks? Because people have gone nuts over this verse and tried to make it real deep and real complex, and it's real simple. It means that since we've been reborn into God's family, and since we've become as little children, then it means we should behave as though God is our Father. That means as His child, we should submit to Him every purpose, every goal, every thought, every emotion, everything we are, and to make what He wants our highest priority. Now, we don't have to do this to be children in God's kingdom, but if we're interested at all about being rewarded in God's kingdom, then what God thinks should overrule what I think or what the world thinks. When circumstances tell us one thing, but God tells us something else. If God is our Father, then what God says overrules. When our feelings tell us one thing, but God tells us something different. If God is our Father, then what God says overrules what we feel. See, if we're going to take step one and call ourselves God's children, then we should be obedient to the Father that we're calling ourselves children of. Does this mean becoming perfect? No. What parent expects their child to be perfect? We're no longer to fear God as our righteous judge, since all judgment against our sin was dealt with at the cross. He is now our loving Father. So being His child and humbling ourselves before Him doesn't mean being perfect. It's about our attitude, folks. It's one of submission out of love to a loving Father. See, our problem as young Christians, we either continue treating our new Father as the judge that we used to fear, or we take the opposite extreme and behave like spoiled, rotten teenagers, taking advantage of a Father's love and patience. We take the cross and we turn it into a license to sin. Now, we would never admit that that's what we're doing. We'd prefer to say it in other ways, like, God loves me for who I am, and this is just who I am. All sins are the same in the eyes of God anyway, so this doesn't matter. Jesus died on the cross so I could do this and not worry about hell anymore. You know, we've, we've all made excuses, folks. But what it all comes down to is good old-fashioned pride. We've humbled ourselves long enough to take step one and be spiritually reborn into new creations, but immediately afterwards, most of us, for a while, some of us longer than others, we decide that we're going to keep control of our lives. See, we don't want to be held accountable to any kind of father, even a good one. We want to be in control. And unfortunately, there are children of God who fight their Heavenly Father at every turn their entire life, and they just keep suffering the earthly consequences over and over again. Hell is no longer an issue. We know that. But folks, there are so many other factors at stake besides hell, such as peace of mind, God's blessing, answered prayer, and the confidence of knowing you're going to get more prayer answered. And the most at stake are the eternal rewards in the coming kingdom. Why would any of us want to risk losing those? Now, don't put words in my mouth. We cannot lose our citizenship in God's kingdom. But we can miss out on rewards and rewarding positions in God's kingdom, and least of all, God's best for us here on the earth before the kingdom comes. Why would we risk missing out on all that just because we want to be in control? Folks, we should take every last bit of our pride and nail it to the cross with Jesus. We should take everything we are and lay it before the throne at every turn, every decision, and with every circumstance. And we should do this not because we're afraid of God, but because we know that He loves us in ways that no one else ever could or ever will. And His knowledge, His wisdom, and His experience, those are resources we should be tapped into concerning everything. And whenever God says one thing while circumstances, friends, or the world, or our heart tells us something else, 
We should ignore every last bit of that and follow our Father. That's what a humble child would do. You know, you hear people say all the time, follow your heart, follow your heart. There ain't no place in the Bible that says follow your heart. The Bible says to give your heart to the Lord and then follow Him. That's what a humble child would do because the faith of a child is simple and it's trusting. Now, don't get me wrong. Even the most obedient and humble of children will occasionally question their father's intelligence once in a while. You know, but why, Daddy? Why, Daddy? Why do I have to wait? Why can't it be this way or that way? Why can't I have it now? That's just normal childhood curiosity and impatience. God expects that. That's normal. But as a whole, the humility of a child is simple, it's trusting, and it's faithful. And the benefit to being humble like that leads to greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said those who humble themselves like this little child are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So that's point number two. Point number three. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. That's Matthew's record of it. Mark adds that he said, And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And then Luke adds that Jesus repeated what he said earlier, according to Mark, where he said, For he who is least among you all shall be great. Which is just another way of saying, if anyone desires to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. All right, this is step three. What in the world does this mean? Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. Not only me, but him who sent me. What does that mean? Jesus is going to use this sentence to springboard into another area of discussion concerning the treatment of children in general, and especially the treatment of children who are saved. But, like I said, he uses this sentence to springboard into that. Right now, he's still lecturing his disciples in response to their question. Who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is step three. Step one was becoming a child to enter the kingdom. Step two was humbling yourself like a child to be great in the kingdom. So now step three is receiving one such child to receive the king's favor. So when he speaks here of receiving one such child, he's speaking of one who's taken steps one and two. He's talking about receiving a fellow brother or sister in Christ. And this isn't just talking about someone who carries the Christian label or wears a cross around their neck or a Jesus fish on their car. At best, that implies they've taken step one. Jesus is saying, if they've also taken step two, then anyone who receives them in my name receives not only me, but him who sent me. Now, in this verse, the word receives in the original Greek means to welcome and accept in other words, Jesus is saying to get over this whole concept of rank and greatness. If someone is a fellow brother or sister in Christ, one who's humbled themselves in Jesus' name, I don't care if he's the emperor of Rome or the emperor's janitor, whether it's a wise old sage or this little child here, if he's humbled himself in my name, then he or she is your brother or sister. You're both children of my Father, so if you welcome and accept each other, you're welcoming and accepting me. And by default, receiving me is receiving the one who sent me. We aren't familiar with the typical family culture that's been around in most of the world for most of history, folks. But it used to be that if a member of any household was welcomed, it was the same as welcoming the whole house. If a prince was welcomed, it was the same as welcoming the king. So Jesus is saying, if you welcome and accept a member of my household, it's the same as welcoming and accepting me and the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all shall be great. And then later, Jesus will show them who's least among them all when he gets down on his hands and knees and personally washes all of their feet.
every last one of them, once again showing by example what it really means to be great in his kingdom. At this point in the narrative, we have something recorded only by Mark and Luke. When Jesus said, Whoever receives one such child in my name, it caused John to remember something that had happened earlier. So he brought it up. Says John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone in your name casting out demons, and we forbade him because he doesn't follow us. But Jesus said to him, Forbid not, for he who is not against us is for us. That's Luke's record of it. Mark says that he said, Don't forbid him, for there is no one who shall do a mighty work in my name that can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. I find this little record fascinating, if for no other reason, folks, some random nobody managed to get himself mentioned in the scriptures for all eternity. He's never mentioned again. We know nothing about him, not even his name. But here in Mark and Luke, we have this one little incident recorded. Some random person out there who had seen either Jesus or the apostles drive out demons became a believer and then took that faith to the next level. He may have been an eyewitness to the incident of Jesus healing the demon-possessed boy who not even the apostles could handle because of their temporary lack of faith. He may very well have even been there to hear Jesus tell them later that if they had just the faith of a mustard seed, they could command mountains to move from here to there. We don't know, but he could have been there to hear all of that and personally began employing what he learned. But however he got started, he was out there driving out demons in Jesus' name, successfully. I think it's interesting that there's no record of him being trained. He was not ordained. He's just somebody out there in Jesus' name casting out demons successfully. So that proves this wasn't just some illusion of faith or fraudulent. It was the real deal. But here we have the very first example of what's known as a party spirit in which people judge another's faith based upon whether or not they're included in their little group. For whatever reason, this individual took his faith and applied it without jumping on any bandwagon and following the apostles around. He didn't come up and say, I'd like to join your fellowship. Didn't do that. And the apostles were incredulous about it. Boy, do we see that today. Well, you're not really saved unless you're Catholic. You're not really saved unless you're Baptist or Pentecostal or whatever. And in case you're not certain that's what they meant, look closely at what they said. They said, teacher... We saw someone in your name casting out demons, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. They didn't say you. Obviously, he was following Jesus, but he didn't follow them. Look at Jesus' response. He said, don't forbid him, for he who is not against us is for us. And in Mark's account, it reports that he said, there is no one who shall do a mighty work in my name that can soon afterwards speak evil of me. This isn't about clubs or cliques. It's about me. If they follow me, then they're on our side. That's it. And folks, this can be applied to more than just denominationalism. There are many Christians who pray and read their Bible every day, who have Christian friends, enjoy getting together on Fridays and be there for each other, pray for each other, convict and reprove if necessary. They learn from each other. But because they get together freely of their own will and not by scheduled appointment or edict, and because there isn't a signpost out front calling it a church, you would be surprised at the accusations that get made. Those living room get-togethers are full of everything the Bible requires of a local assembly, but if it hasn't been made official by a bulletin or a signpost, then it doesn't count as far as some people are concerned. What? You don't go to church? In other words, what? You don't follow us and do like we do? Jesus condemned that attitude, folks. People are to follow Jesus and his word, not a group. Does that mean Christians can go it alone? Absolutely not. 
Christians shouldn't have to face life without the company of other Christians. It's important to get together. That's what the last half of Hebrews chapter 10 is all about. But don't allow those of a party spirit browbeat you into following their little circle, whatever that circle is called, whether it's a denominational label or a church label in general. But Josh, what about accountability? Well, Jesus is their accountability if they get together in his name. When we get to Matthew 18, verse 20, Jesus will say, Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That's what Jesus is trying to point out here in this passage concerning anything that is done in his name. This guy was casting out demons in Jesus' name, which leads us to our next topic. What does it really mean when anything is said or done in Jesus' name? We hear that a lot, but what does that mean? To do anything in someone's name is to claim to be doing it in his or her stead and with his or her authority backing them up. Now, many people today will claim authority in Jesus' name who don't have it. Saying you have his authority and actually having it are two different things. Jesus said, No one who shall do a mighty work in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. Notice Jesus did not say that no one who shall claim to do a mighty work in my name. Anybody can claim to do something in Jesus' name and be a total fraud. But to actually do a mighty work in Jesus' name is to do it with his authority, with his approval, in his presence, and with his power. And in this scenario, we have an unnamed person who had faith in the person of Jesus Christ to the extent that he was like the Roman centurion who knew that Jesus didn't have to physically be there to give an order. He was in command of all things, seen and unseen, and knew that if Jesus was there, he'd command those demons himself to come out. So in his stead, in his name, he commanded them to come out. And then according to Mark's report in chapter 9, verse 41, Jesus continued and said, For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. That's the worth of doing something in Jesus' name. And in this verse here, it points out that whenever you reach out to another Christian in need, because they're a Christian... Because they're a member of God's family, according to Jesus himself, that person will be rewarded and will never lose their reward, which means it's a reward that will be given in heaven. Now, if you do it because you'll be seen and praised, then you've already received your reward here. But if you're doing it because they're an adopted member of the same family you were adopted into, then Jesus said you'd be rewarded for that and will never lose your reward. So the Christian you helped out 20 years ago, maybe you opened a door. Maybe you gave them a cup of water. Maybe you bought them dinner. Maybe you gave them encouragement. Whatever it was you did, you probably forgot about it. Jesus hasn't. Okay, now in contrast to that, now Jesus is going to focus on the reward that's waiting for those who are opposed to God's children. This is in Matthew chapter 18, verses 6 to, well, it goes on. starts in Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, and Mark chapter 9, verse 42. In both Matthew and Mark, Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble in sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung about his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Matthew reports that he added to that, Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. Those enticements to sin must come, but woe to the one by whom the enticement comes. Folks, many Bible commentators, including me, have made the mistake of thinking that this passage of Scripture and its following verses are about Jesus' response to child abuse and those who are mistreated by adults. 
It's a child that he's using as a physical reference point in his lecture. But what has the child symbolized since Jesus first sat him down? That child represents all those who have been reborn into God's family, becoming children of God. As Jesus held the child next to him, he said just before all of this, in verse 3 to 5 of Matthew chapter 18, he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name, as in someone who has humbled himself as a child of God, whoever receives one such child like that receives me. He said all of this just before verse 41. In Mark's account, in Mark chapter 9, verse 41, Jesus said, For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. But now Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble in sin, as opposed to giving them a drink of water and receiving them, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung about his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Many of us are quick to assert that this is Jesus rebuking child abuse, but I find more evidence that Jesus is going much deeper than that because the abuse Jesus refers to is causing and enticing the little ones who believe in him to stumble into sin. Well, how old does one get before they're no longer tempted to stumble into sin? What age do we reach physically when sin of any kind is no longer enticing to us? When do we outgrow sin? <laughs> When does Satan give up? Sorry, folks, that won't happen until our old bodies are dead in the grave and our souls are installed in brand new bodies free of the sin virus. Until then, Paul makes it crystal clear in Romans chapter 7 that there is nothing good in our old flesh. After we're saved and become children of God, we are immediately given a new heart, we're given a new spirit and a new nature, and we're encouraged to study God's word to renew the mind. And we're given the promise of eternal life, which means being uploaded into new hardware when the old hardware dies. But until we are installed in the new hardware, the sin virus infecting our old hardware will continue to wage war against our new nature, against our new heart, and against our new spirit. At best, that virus can only be quarantined by the renewing of the mind. And even then, the quarantine isn't foolproof. No matter how wise and how renewed the mind is, the sin virus is constantly seeking out vulnerabilities and loopholes around the quarantine. The old body has to die so that you can be uploaded into new hardware, leaving that old hardware and its corrupting virus behind. So this doesn't just apply to little children, folks. It includes them, but it applies to every one of us specifically who've been adopted into God's family as his children. When Jesus speaks of them causing one of these little ones who believe in him to stumble and sin, the Greek word that's translated stumble and sin is actually a single word that's also translated offend in many Bibles because it's the same Greek word that Jesus used earlier when he told Peter to pay the temple tax so that they would not offend the collectors. Even though Jesus didn't have to pay that temple tax, he knew that they didn't understand why and the last thing that he wanted to do was to cause them to stumble into sin because he didn't pay the tax. So he told Peter to pay them, lest we offend them. Another way that verse could have been translated into English could have been, lest we cause them to stumble in sin. Because it's the same Greek word that's used here. Today we might say something like tripping them up, slowing them down, getting them hung up on something. 
That's why some English Bibles actually translate this stumbling block. It's an interesting view from God's standpoint concerning temptation. When Satan or his agents, be they human or spiritual or both, whenever they tempt us, we often hear about the spiritual battle that's going on behind the scenes. What we don't often hear about, though, is God's emotional response when we fail. Well, here it is right here. And notice the target of God's anger. It's not us. He says, those enticements to sin must come, but woe to the one by whom the enticement comes. For whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble in sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung about his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Think about the various tools used to trip up Christians and those who use them, folks. Don't limit this to the brand of temptation we usually think of. When we think of temptation, we normally think of the lust of the eyes, the ears, the flesh. But this clearly goes beyond that. This also includes those who introduce false doctrine. How many Christians lose interest in their relationship with Christ because of a teacher or a pastor that's more interested in being an entertainer than a truth teller? And don't stop there. This also covers those who call themselves scientists. One of the stigmas that Christians have today is that they reject science. That's not true. Any legitimate Christian would embrace science because real science is the mathematics that God chose to use to create the universe. God is the creator of science. Why most Christians today reject science is because too many scientists today promote ideas that they know to be false. And what they promote requires ten times the faith than anything found in the Bible. And yet they promote anyway because they don't like the truth. Believing lies is more comfortable when everybody around you believes the same lies. So people delude themselves and delude as many people as they can to go along with them. But guess what eventually happens to them? Well, what happens to people when they're thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around their neck? Normally they would drown and die. That is, if their neck doesn't break from the fall. But Jesus says, no, that's too good for them. And with this comes a very aggressive, descriptive explanation of hell. Addressing those who cause Christians to stumble and sin, Jesus now threatens to these architects of sin what will happen to them if they don't rid themselves of the instruments of sin that are at their disposal. Matthew's report is unusually succinct, while Mark's account is more in-depth. Matthew's version is in Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9, and Mark's version is in Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 48, where Jesus says, If your hand causes you to stumble in sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die, and the fire is not put out. If your foot causes you to stumble in sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life limping than with two legs walk into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die, and the fire is not put out. If your eye causes you to stumble in sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes and be thrown into hellfire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not put out. Now, some people wonder if when you first get to heaven, you still have your scars and physical deficiencies based on these passages. I don't think that's the case because there's too many passages about the resurrection being addressed as putting on incorruptible bodies. But just in case anybody's worried about this, if you did show up in heaven missing an arm or a leg, that condition would not be permanent. Because these verses only mention entering heaven in that state. Don't you think Jesus would restore those things the moment you got there? He did it for humans on the earth that he never dealt with again. So don't you think he'd do it for his children who just moved into their new homes with him forever? 
Now, before you run off cutting your hands and feet, look at this passage in its context, folks. This isn't addressed to God's children anyway, but to those who target God's children, enticing them to stumble. Woe to the world because it has to put up with you, but woe to you because of what's waiting for you. Drowning in the sea with a millstone hung around your neck would be better compared to what's waiting for you. Woe to you, for if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble in sin, cut them off and throw them away, because in your case, it's better to enter life maimed than with two hands and two feet be thrown into everlasting fire. Woe to you, for if your eye causes you to stumble in sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. This isn't a warning to God's children on how to keep themselves out of hell, folks. He's warning the creators of sin, the creators of stumbling blocks, that they would fare off better without their instruments of sin than to keep them. When Jesus said the same thing in his Sermon on the Mount, he was laying out to everybody perfection needed to stay constantly free from sin and to earn access into heaven. But since that kind of perfection has never been achieved, and Jesus knew that it wouldn't, he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it personally, on our behalf, and then pay for our sins. Those of us who've been reborn as children in God's family have accepted Jesus as our substitute, but those who persecute God's children are not God's children. They're children of the enemy. They're tares among the wheat. Jesus said of the architects of sin, those who cause Christians to stumble into sin, he said it would be better for them, not us, but them, that they were thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around their neck. Really? That's better than what's really going to happen? What's worse than being thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck and drowned? I mean, what's worse than that? Spending eternity without a millstone hung around your neck, fully conscious and alive, forever, in hellfire. That's what's worse. So likewise, what's worse than having your hands cut off? Spending eternity with your hands intact in hellfire. What's worse than having your eyes plucked out? Spending eternity with your eyes intact in hellfire. The Greek word used in these passages, translated hell and hellfire in your English, is the Greek word Gehenna, which is the name of a place that's different from Hades, Gehenna is where Satan, his angels, and all those who rejected Jesus Christ will be, future tense, will be sent to spend out eternity. Gehenna is where the lake of fire is, and it's presently empty. It's reserved for Satan to be his first prisoner, since he's the first murderer and the first criminal still on the loose. After Satan is imprisoned there, Gehenna will then receive all those who throughout history were opposed to God and his kingdom. But until then, the human enemies of God's kingdom, who aren't still alive walking the earth, are presently awaiting their final judgment in the tormenting prison known as Hades. Now, some Bibles translate both Gehenna and Hades into the English word hell, which makes things a little confusing because they are not the same place, folks. When the lost die, they don't go to Gehenna. They go straight to Hades, where they await for the great white throne judgment when they stand before Christ to be sentenced to their final doom based upon their actions and deeds before being thrown into Gehenna. You could call Hades death row, and Gehenna the gas chamber, only you don't die in that gas chamber. You serve out a life sentence that's eternal. When Jesus speaks of Gehenna's eternal fires that shall never be quenched, you'll never guess what eternal fire is in the original Greek. I couldn't believe it. It's asbestos. What irony. We use the word asbestos as a label for material used to keep fire from quenching something, but here the word is used to describe hell's fires that cannot be quenched. What irony. To really drive the point home, Jesus said their worm does not die and the fire is not put out. 
In Mark's account of this in chapter 9, the King James, the Young's, the New King James, and the New American Standard all quote Jesus saying it three separate times, once in verse 44, again in verse 46, and then one last time in verse 48. Other translations delete verses 44 and 46, but leave verse 48 with a footnote saying that earlier manuscripts only record Jesus saying it in verse 48. Now, based on the track record concerning other disputed passages debated upon by the so-called scholars, I'm more inclined to believe Jesus actually did say it all three times, but I'm not worried about tracking this down since they all do agree that he did say it at least once in verse 48. Jesus gives Gehenna's prisoners ownership of their worm, which dramatically paints a hideous picture for us, folks. Obviously, Jesus is speaking of the maggot. Does this mean there are literal maggots eating the prisoner's flesh in Gehenna for all eternity? I honestly don't know, but I don't think that's what he meant. The maggot is a symbol of death, and in the case of those in Gehenna, there is no release from death. When a maggot feeds on a corpse, it eventually dies, if not before, then after the corpse turns to ashes. But in Gehenna, their worm does not die. This destroys the doctrine of annihilation. Some folks have rewritten damnation to mean a physical and spiritual annihilation into oblivion, into nothingness. I wish that were true, but Jesus couldn't have painted a more vivid picture to contradict that notion right here. Their worm does not die, and the fire is not put out. Now, since the worm in that verse is symbolic of eternal death and not a literal worm, many hope that the fire is also symbolic of eternal judgment and not literal fire. But I have some bad news for them, because even if fire is only symbolic in this verse here, he didn't preface the fire with a symbolic worm in verses 43, 45, and 47, where he said they'd go into the fire that shall never be quenched. And so far, no scholar has yet dared to debate over the validity of those verses. Too many pastors think it's too old-fashioned to bring up hell. I don't like bringing it up either, but Jesus brought it up here in Matthew chapter 18 and Mark 9, and that's where we're reading right now, so we don't have any choice. I didn't bring it up, Jesus did. And if you've been following us along since we started our study of the gospel, you'll notice that Jesus was not a hellfire and damnation preacher. Jesus didn't use hell to threaten people into obedience. But he would have been dishonest to not mention it at all, because saving us from hell is the reason he came. When Christians say that they're saved, what does that mean? Saved from what? Lately, there seems to be a movement within Christianity to either downplay hell as some place that's not really as bad as people say it is, or to completely delete hell from doctrine altogether. But folks, if you delete hell, then why did Jesus go through the trouble of dying on the cross to pay for our sins and save us from it? What did he save us from if there's no hell? Yeah, but Josh, where's the love of God if he can create a place like hell and send people there? Easy answer. First of all, he doesn't send people there, and second of all, Look at the cross if you're looking for evidence of God's love. Because standing between you and all the horrors of hell is the cross. That's where God's love is. All anyone has to do to stay out of hell is to accept what Jesus did for us in payment for our sins. The cost to us of accepting that is absolutely nothing. It's free for the asking, but what it cost God was his only son. The father gave up his son. The son gave up his original position in hyperdimensional supremacy to take on human flesh and wear it out on the cross. That's what he did to save everybody from hell. Everybody. Not just Christians, the whole world. The scriptures tell us he died for the sins of the whole world. God didn't create hell to put naughty people there. He created it to be an eternal prison for the one who invented death. The one who invented cancer. 
the one who invented Alzheimer's disease and birth defects, old age, wrinkles, arthritis, AIDS, and go on down the list. His name is Satan, which means the adversary. For every ounce and millisecond of pain and suffering that anyone has ever endured on this planet, it is replicated and reserved a million times over for Satan to endure forever, for all eternity in hell. But Satan is so filled with rage and hatred that in spite of his doom, he's made it his mission in life and what life he has left to take as many as he can with him. So that's where all sin comes into play and all the deception that surrounds it. Without an atonement for sin, we're all destined for hell, not as a punishment for our sin, not because God sends us there, but because hell is our default destiny without an atonement for our sin. So it's no wonder that Satan's been deceiving pastors into deleting the doctrine of hell. If there's no hell, then the desperate need for atonement isn't as great. Satan used to just deceive people into believing that sin wasn't that big a deal. Now he's telling them there's no hell. People get confused about heaven and hell mostly because of the question of merit and what people deserve and what they think they deserve. But neither heaven or hell is about what people deserve. None of us could ever be good enough to deserve heaven, and I dare say no human could ever be evil enough to deserve hell. Because hell wasn't created for humans, it was created for Satan. We're talking about the maximum level of physical torment that a body can experience moment by moment without rest for all eternity. No one deserves that unless they know it exists, they know it's coming for them, they know the way out, and choose not to accept it for reasons of pride, and then they take sides with Satan against God's children under various aliases. In their case, then I'd have to agree that they do deserve hell, because folks, that's just stupid. I'm sorry, I can't think of any other way to say it. That's the same thing as purposefully pouring gasoline all over yourself, lighting a match, setting yourself on fire, and then blaming God for allowing you to burn. Actually, it's worse than that. I should have said he was standing next to a swimming pool the whole time, full of water, and the only thing that gets the guy moving is when it starts to rain. He runs under a shed to keep the fire from being burned out and still gets mad at God for letting him burn. That's what people go through their entire lives resisting the love of God. That's what that is. And it's my opinion, based upon my understanding of the scriptures, that those are the only humans who go to hell anyway. That's the category of person in this passage here, those who were actively opposed to God's children. They aren't bystanders. They've taken sides. God does not let people slip into hell by accident. If anybody chose sides against God's children by accident, it was Paul. He was deceived, and Jesus blindsided them in the middle of the road one day and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And because of that, Paul made a complete 180 and wound up being the author of most of the Bible's New Testament. It would completely violate the very character of God to send his son to the cross, for Jesus to endure the cross, and then for the Father and the Son in heaven to just sit around hoping that people figure things out on their own while watching people Jesus died for slip into eternal torment because they just didn't get it. They just weren't smart enough to figure things out. Folks, that's an insult to God's intelligence, and it's certainly an insult to God's love. So don't get caught up about whether or not people are bad enough to deserve hell. Nobody deserves hell unless they know all about it and choose to go there out of stubborn, rebellious pride. And unfortunately, there are many people that fall into that category. But likewise, nobody deserves heaven. Jesus took care of all the deserving by being perfect on our behalf, which is why this little segment of Jesus' lecture is a hat tip to his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said all this before about cutting off hands and feet and plucking out eyes to keep from sinning in his Sermon on the Mount. But in that sermon, Jesus was holding up an example of what it means to be absolutely, continually perfect. 
Perfection is what it would take to get into heaven, which is unachievable. It would take the power of a God in human flesh to be perfect. And that's the whole point. Jesus said, Think not that I come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. I came to fulfill it. It would also take the supernatural love of God in human flesh to take on all the sin of the world and atone for it. And that's the whole point, which is why Jesus now makes the following segue in Mark chapter 9, verse 49 and 50. He says, For everyone will be salted with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace in one another. Now, some Bibles omit the last portion of verse 49, where Jesus says, And every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. And they omit it for the very same reasons they claim to omit everything else. But I think it's obvious if you omit this verse, then the next verse doesn't make any sense. Because if you take that out, then it says everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. Have salt in yourselves. Huh? Without the sacrifice being seasoned with salt, verse 50 doesn't make any sense, folks. Because according to Deuteronomy 29, verse 33, the temple sacrificial offerings were salted to aid in the burning of the sacrifice. So everyone will be salted with fire, all of us, either literally in Gehenna or symbolically through a substitute. Isn't that cool? The sacrifice made by Jesus Christ. And if you're in Jesus Christ, then for you, the salt is within you. Jesus once again gives a hat tip to his original Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth. As God's children, we should be the flavoring on this planet representing our king. If salt loses its flavor, what good is it? Does it cease to be salt? No, but salt without flavor doesn't have a purpose. Its purpose no longer exists. And now Jesus makes the following statements concerning just how closely God watches over all of those whom he calls his own. And this is in Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 to 14. Jesus says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. Even so, likewise, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Folks, those five verses are a mouthful of insights and doctrine. We could spend another hour digging up stuff for each one of those verses. The summary of these five verses is that if the Son of Man would come to save that which was lost, then how much more will he do for those who are now God's children? It's easy to miss that if you read this too fast. Just a real quick side note, though. Some people have taken the doctrine of predestination to a level that is totally not scriptural, and they try to imply that all those who are saved were divinely picked out, while those who were lost are divinely discarded, implying that the lost are lost because they weren't divinely chosen to be saved. Folks, Jesus right here in this verse puts an end to that heresy, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. That's everybody. That's everyone. Everywhere of all history. Now, does everyone get saved? No, but that's because of their rejection, not the rejection of God. He wants everyone saved. Verse 14 says that it's not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. 
Many believe that this verse proves that all children who die before they reach an age of intellectual accountability go to heaven. And I agree with that belief for several reasons given throughout the scripture, but there's no need to get into that and explain it here because I don't believe that this verse has anything to do with that. This verse isn't about children in general dying before they've reached an age of accountability, but specifically the children of God who were already saved. Concerning them, first Jesus says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, as in one of God's children. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. The word behold in the Greek is a primary verb meaning to look at, to look onto, to beware, to perceive, to regard and take heed. These angels are given orders to constantly await further orders moment by moment, concerning God's children. It's from this verse that we conclude that children have guardian angels, but don't forget this isn't just about children, but the children of God. Jesus gives ownership of these angels to the ones they guard. He calls them their angels. So with this insight, we can conclude that each Christian, each child of God, is constantly, 24-7, surrounded by angels that have been assigned to them. Now, don't try to communicate with them. That's not why they're there. They only report back to the Father, and they only listen to the Father. They aren't there to listen to you or report to you. But they're there for every child of God. And in the next verse, the Son of Man's whole point for coming was to save that which was lost, making them children of God. So if God would do that for the lost who were not his children, then you can be certain that God would constantly be involved in the lives of his children, watching over them and being continually concerned over every intricate detail. We've read all of Jesus' warnings against those who would dare to attempt causing hurt or stumbling to God's children, but what does God do for those of his children who have been successfully victimized and brutally attacked? So much so to the point that they've even become runaways. Christians do that sometimes for whatever reason. Either they've been deceived into a rebellion or they were hurt and got mad at God, got tired of trying to live the Christian life, got fed up with the warfare or just got punch drunk from some deep valley. Whatever the reason, it happens sometimes. Sometimes we get the wind knocked out of us for a while. Sometimes we don't run away from God on purpose. We just wind up running and don't pay attention to where we're running. And then one day it's like, what happened to my life? What's going on? And then we realize we became victims of distractions that even now still can't be ignored. There's all kinds of attacks that can derail a good Christian. This isn't an insult to anyone's level of faith. It can happen to anybody. So, what happens to God's children who become victims of false doctrine, or victims of abuse, or victims of fear, victims of a heinous tragedy that doesn't make any sense, or victims of longing and running to fulfill that longing but in ways that lead to sin? There's all kinds of tactics the enemy uses to seduce and lead astray God's children, and sometimes he's successful. So, what does God do with those children? What does God do with those who run off in the dark? What happens to them? Well, what did Jesus say? He says, what do you think? If a man, a physical human being without supernatural love, has a hundred sheep, and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. 
Likewise, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven, a spiritual, hyperdimensional being with supernatural love. It is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If a human will go after his lost sheep, then your heavenly Father, with all that's at his disposal, will most certainly go after one of his children who's wandered off, especially since he sent his own Son to save them even before they were his children. Using sheep as a symbol for God's children, Jesus said it's not the Father's will that one of these little ones should perish. Which little ones? Which little ones has he been referring to in this whole lecture? Those who have become children of God. Those who've humbled themselves like little children, but in this case, children who run away, but who never ceased being God's children. In this parable, it's a sheep within the fold that got lost, but he got lost from the fold of a man that had purchased him. Jesus said if a man has a hundred sheep, meaning he owned them, they belonged to him. At no time did the lost sheep cease to be a sheep of his flock. If it had died before his owner brought him back into the fold, it would have died before knowing again the love and protection of its owner. But it would not have ceased to belong to the one who purchased it. So what does that mean? It means if you're one of God's children, then you can't lose your salvation. If you get out of hand, you can lose God's favor. You can lose his approval. You can lose God's protection. You can lose his peace. You can lose God's blessings in your life. You can lose heavenly rewards. You can lose your godly inheritance. But you can't lose your position as a member of God's family because it wasn't you who bought into that family. It was Jesus who purchased you with his own blood. And Jesus won't take that back. It's a done deal. This parable of the lost sheep is similar to another lost sheep parable that Jesus gives later on, recorded in Luke 15. And it sometimes gets synchronized with this parable here, but it's not the same conversation. And when we get to Luke 15, you'll see why. But we're going to stop it there for this time, folks. Until the next time, we're out of here. Take care.